of the early days of my life, I actually kind of remember getting our first TV, a big black and white box. Anyway, but there was a commercial, the original one, it, it lasted for several years, but the original one was a woman staring into a mirror. It was this woman, actually. And she was brushing her beautiful hair, and in the background was this voice that repeated over and over again. And some of you remember this. What did it say? Does she or doesn't she? Does she or doesn't she? Does she or doesn't she? Hair color so natural, only her hairdresser knows for sure. Who remembers that? Yeah, so um, this is an old one. It was one of those kind of ads that became kind of locked into our culture for a while. People used that phrase for a lot of different things for years after this. It went all well into the, the 60s and maybe even the early 70s. Christians, as they often do, pick up on this and kind of make it their own and started referring to people as Clairol Christians. Clairol Christians. Does she really believe and know Christ or not? Does he follow Christ or not? As in, do they believe? Are they really a Christian? It's hard to tell by looking at them, but perhaps they're a Clairol Christian. Only God knows for sure, not to be confused with their hairdresser. For some, this is simply a way of saying we don't decide who a believer is or not. For others, it was a questioning someone's walk that doesn't line up with their talk. And it really became a form of passing judgment. Do I get to decide whether someone is a Christian or not? Passing judgment as in judgmental. While the Clairol line and reference died a long time ago, and some of you are wondering why I'm referring to ancient history. Judgmentalism from believers, unfortunately, is alive and well and destructive. Judgmentalism is driving people away from the church more than ever today. There's all kinds of studies on why people are leaving the church, but an April 2017 article by author Alex McFarland says, 10 reasons millennials are backing away from God and Christianity. McFarland says, begins this way, college days millennials today are far more likely than the general population to be religiously unaffiliated. This is true when they are compared to a previous generation as well. In fact, the Pew Research Center documents that millennials are the least outwardly religion, religious American generation uh, where, quote, one in four are unaffiliated with any religion far more than the share of older adults when they were ages 18 to 29. And here's the, here's the statistic. Just over 60% of millennials say that Christianity is judgmental. 60%. And 64% say that anti-gay best, descri- best describes most churches today. In another post I found by pastor and blogger Kerry Newhoff, he says this, Jesus said Christians should be known for how deeply we love, yet studies show that in the eyes of many non-Christians we're known for how deeply we judge, not for how deeply we love. We've got a lot of repair work to do, don't we? (laughs) And now as we hear these words from the Apostle Paul to the Roman Christians, we discover how real judgmentalism was then, too. Specifically, he's speaking of Christian to Christian. Some of what I've talked about in driving people away is judgment of others in the world who don't even profess to follow Christ. But here we zero in on Christian to Christian, which is even more destructive because it divides us when we need to be together to be a unified witness to the world. But Christians were asking this question of who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out. 
And as he addresses it here, there's a, there's a corrective, though, in it. There are reminders that Paul gives of our oneness in Christ. There's reminders of the acceptance of God and the reminder that there is just one judge, and it's not me, and it's not you. The answer, of course, is always Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, that's true. <laughs> Jesus is the judge. So let's look at this then for a few minutes here. As the Apostle Paul addresses judgmentalism in the Roman church over what he calls disputable matters, we are encouraged to imitate Jesus by looking to his model of acceptance and compassion as we're called to unity around him, around Jesus. First of all, we're going to look at the context here. We're going to ask the question, when in Rome? What was going on there? What, did, what spurred this writing from Paul? Secondly, we're going to ask the question, if we're going to imitate Jesus, we need to know what he did. What would Jesus do? We can't know what Jesus would do if we didn't know what he did, if we don't know what he did. And then thirdly, we're going to look at our own denominational family in Psalm 119.63, which was a place where the denomination started, gathering in unity around Christ and not splitting over divisive matters. So when in Rome, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and many of the Roman Christians were, were Jewish converts to the faith, and others were coming from a completely pagan background. There was now, there was rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, men and women. They, together, they are all experienced when we would say the joys and challenges of Christian unity. This diverse group of people was finding itself in one church and learning how to live together. And part of what Paul holds up in his letters and teaching is that is one of the things that validates Christianity, one of the things that validates Christianity is its ability to bring people together from different segments of society that would normally be estranged from each other in that culture and even in ours today, or perhaps especially in ours today. Paul often holds up this remarkable unity that happens when we are one in Christ, even though there are so many other things that make us different. In Christ, all kinds of barriers were broken down, and the church unified people, and it gave them, in a sense, a preview of what heaven will be like. Gathered all around Jesus, the common denominator, so to speak. But in reality, there are the challenges, and it's hard to live that out. It is hard to live that out, then and now. As Stuart Briscoe says in his comments on this passage, in theory, the walls were down in that early church, but in practice, walls have a habit of putting themselves up again. And that was happening in Rome, and Paul points out two examples that seem like nothing to us, but they were a big deal then, and he calls them disputable matters. Disputable matters. In the very first line, verse 1 says, accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And the two matters were things about food, questions about food, what you eat and don't eat, and questions about observing holy days. The weak in this passage are those who are new and growing in the faith. They are still holding uh, perhaps to old habits and traditions. The Jewish Christians still have some of these dietary restrictions from their, their background. They were very careful with food regulations, and it was tied back to the old dietary laws. They would never eat certain animals, and they wouldn't eat others if they were uncertain if they had come to them in an incorrect way. In other words, if they had not been killed according to the, line, uh, the, the guidelines. Or perhaps it was an animal that in the pagan realm of the Roman area had, had perhaps been sacrificed to an idol or sacrificed to some pagan god and then sold at market. For the Jews, that is something they would not eat. So some of them, and when they didn't know where the meat came from, just simply stopped eating meat. So that's why it said, they, some of you just eat vegetables. This is, not a, this is not a proof 
text that vegetarianism is God's way. It was just a choice they were making at the time. So can you see sort of these disagreements? And, 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 and those coming from the other backgrounds were like, what's the big deal? You know, food is food, meat is meat. You know, we don't believe in the pagan temples, and it's, and it's still good meat. Nothing happened to the meat. Let's eat it, you know? And so there was no worries there. There was no law to keep for them and for them to still be following Jesus. And so what happened was both of them began looking at each other with misunderstanding at best, criticism and contempt and judgment at worst. That's what was going on. That was one of the disputable matters. There was a similar conflict around the Jewish practice of observing certain holy days, certain things that could and couldn't be done on those days. And for some, that that even lingers into this day on the Sabbath. And some of you, perhaps even in your conservative evangelical Christian background, can remember things you, you, the, the best memory of Sundays is things that were fun that you could not do. Praise God, right? And this, but this was held, this is serious for them. We do need to guard the Sabbath. We do need to be careful about making it special. But they were holding this. These people saw it as essential, even though they had come to Christ. And so this criticism and judgment went both ways on this. And Paul calls these disputable matters. And part of their growing in maturity is learning which things are which and which are not. What are the non-negotiables and what are the disputables? And even the non-negotiables, we're still debating some of those, aren't we? <laughs> Because it continues to be a work in progress for the people growing in Christ, committed to Scripture, and yet seeking the interpretation and direction of the Spirit. That's what was going on in Rome. Let's ask next the question, what would Jesus do? Paul begins this passage with the word accept. Accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable manners. And then in verse 3, he goes on and says, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Don't treat each other with contempt. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. For God has accepted them. It's kind of like if God says it's okay, it must be, right? So Jesus, who is God with us, then comes not with judgment, but he comes with compassion. He comes with grace. He comes with acceptance. And he does come with judgment, but not in the midst of these situations. Consider Jesus with the woman at the well. Yes, she was a sinner. Yes, he pointed it out. But he pointed out in a way that showed grace and compassion so that she would be drawn to repentance and faith. What about when he called Matthew from the tax booth and he got Zacchaeus down from that tree in Jericho? They were tax collectors. Yes, they were sinners. Yes, they were ripping people off. But Jesus cares for them and he draws them by his compassion and grace to repentance and then to faith. Most of us know some version of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know what John 3.17 is? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came to love and he came to save. But he did come or will come to judge as well. But he's the only one that will judge, and that's only after a season that is not yet over, where he is still working, where he is still wooing people to faith in him, where we are still partnering with him to bless people in order that they might know the love, compassion, acceptance of God in Christ. And so the end has not come, the judge has not come, because there is still time for God to accept and welcome people into the kingdom. And when he was on earth... 
When we looked at Jesus, the one we imitate and long to be like, who was he the hardest on? The tax collectors? The prostitutes and others defined as sinners of that day? No. Who was he the hardest on? The legalistic, hypocritical, judgmental, religious leaders. That's who Jesus judged the most. Because they were turning people away from the faith rather than drawing them in. And so as Paul teaches the Romans, he knows what Jesus would do. And we need to ask the question, what will we do? And I love the expression of holding up a mirror. What will we do? We have this cover on, on, on our bulletin cover. I've had this empty frame on this table that I, there's nothing I can do to make that thing stand up. I'll work on it this week. But anyway, that's what it's supposed to represent, a mirror. Do you know we have two dozen little bottles of tacky glue and Elmer's glue in the, in the resource room? Not a single one of them works. None of them. I think we should argue about this. Who's in charge of that? Let's judge them. <laughs> But this idea of holding up a mirror indicates our desire to be more like Jesus. When we look into the mirror, what is it we see? Is it becoming more like Jesus? It's a good image for self-examination. Some do look in the mirror to say, does my hair look okay? Is the kale salad out of my teeth today from last night? But we look at the mirror, we look at what needs to be worked on in order to look our best. What needs to be worked on to be more like Jesus? Are there any blemishes of judgmentalism that need to be healed and cleared and clean? Whether we have said it out loud, most of us at one time or another have filled in the blank of this sentence. I'm not sure you can be a Christian and blank. I'm not sure you can be a Christian and dress like that. I'm not sure you can be a Christian and eat like that or especially drink like that. I'm not sure you can be a Christian and let your kids do that. I'm not sure you can be a Christian and really believe that. I'm not sure you can be a Christian except that interpretation as okay. I'm not sure you can be a Christian and vote for that candidate. Maybe so, maybe not. But we need to look in the mirror. The problem with this also, as I realize, we're thinking of all the other people that do that, aren't we? We instantly think, I think it's terrible that people fill in that blank with those things. I fill in the blank with those things. (laughs) We need to look in that mirror and say, Lord, where am I stepping into your place of judgment? We are not the judge. Jesus is. Jesus talked about the planks and the specks in Matthew 7, 3. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And we look at that, so, you know, Jesus was going, this is kind of a funny image. It's okay to laugh at Jesus here. He's, it's hyperbole, but he's saying, this is what we're doing. Look in the mirror. See that big, huge plank? Ha, 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 ha. Look there instead of looking at the speck in your sister's eye. Look in the mirror. We are not the judge. Jesus says then, or Paul goes on and says here in our text this morning, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, quote, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give account of ourselves to God. 
We pay attention to ourselves and look at that mirror to see if we're becoming more like Jesus and less like those who hold to our sometimes petty differences. Some we hold strongly, but we hold them loosely because we trust Christ first. I want to finish for a few minutes here by looking at Psalm 116.63. It's a good place to start. As I, as I thought about these disputable matters that Paul addresses in Romans 14, these are, these are areas where Christians disagree. Agree about Christ, but disagree about a lot of other issues and interpretations. But they are not necessarily, all of them, essentials to the faith. When I thought of this, I couldn't help but think of our denominational family, the Evangelical Covenant Church, and one of the richest parts of our heritage and our identity now that still, play, still plays a role in who we are right now. In fact, it's where the covenant started in 1885 at a meeting right here in Chicago when the covenant was formed. Only then, it was the Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant Church in America. As you can tell over years, each different words got dropped off. We're down to Evangelical Covenant Church. <laughs> but it started with this verse. On February 18, 1885, yes, they met in Chicago in winter, and people came from churches all over the Midwest and the East Coast to form this union. They were individual, independent churches, but they had this connection as mission friends, they called themselves. And they came together, delegates from churches across the U.S., met in Chicago to organize as a union of churches that would become the Covenant Church. The meeting began with an Ash Wednesday preaching service, and a man named Pastor F.M., I have no idea what F and M stand for. They were probably weird names, so he just went by F.M. Pastor F.M. Johnson shared from Psalm 116, 119.63, and Carl August Bjork, who was one of our founders, also preached on the topic of unity right after this. Psalm 119.63 is, I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. This is where the covenant started. I'm a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Beginning on that night, it established freedom and friendship at the core of covenant identity. Freedom and friendship at the core of covenant identity. The early covenanters called themselves mission friends. And by saying of all that fear thee, F.M. Johnson was acknowledging that not all will agree on all points of interpretation and practice. But we will be companions with all believers. At that point in February of 85, they were all people of Swedish heritage and background because the language Swedish. They were immigrants finding their way in a new land. They had been warmly welcomed to this country by some and not by others, and yet they were finding their way and they were drawn together their faith. And at that point, all who fear thee had to be able to speak Swedish. But we've grown from that. Obviously, thoroughly into English, but now embracing several different languages, even right here in our own country. I'm a companion of all who fear you, and of all those who keep your precepts. So that the covenant has now grown not only beyond this uh, very much appreciated Swedish background, that do you know we, even though we are a small denomination, we are declared one of the most diverse denominations that has an ethnic history, one of the most diverse in terms of our congregations, in terms of our leadership team at covenant offices. Because of this reality, not to be cool, because diversity is cool, but because it's biblical, and the scripture calls it to us. One of our six affirmations is the reality of freedom in Christ. And we ask the question, can we agree to disagree? 
I'm just going to read briefly from that. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to it here. The covenant church seeks to focus on what unites followers of Jesus rather than what separates them. The center of our commitment is a clear faith in Jesus, the centrality of the world, and the necessity of new birth. Followers of Christ find security to offer freedom to one another on issues where they might otherwise divide. Centered in Christ and the word, followers find freedom to differ with one another on issues and to unite around Christ. This has at times led to controversy over such matters as baptism, the second coming of Christ, the precise nature of the inspiration of Scripture, or how the atonement may be understood, and other various matters of life and practice. Doing the things in the blank, doing that. (laughs) Diverse matters of life and practice. To some, such freedom is no freedom at all. This is a key thing to know about the covenant. Some don't see that as freedom. They would rather have the marching orders clear and an unimpeachable source of authority. Just tell me what to believe. Just tell me what it means rather than to bear the responsibility ourselves. And it says here that it's not easy to be free, but such limitations of freedom show not wisdom but immaturity. Anyway, there's more. I just want to tell you one story about a couple women I knew in a former church, and we'll land this plane. You know, one of the disputable matters is baptism. Just last Sunday, we had an infant baptism here, baptized little Aubrey Gustafson. And some of you may come from a, a tradition and a background where you're used to believer baptism, immersion baptism, and you kind of wondered, infant baptism? I grew up hearing that people that do that think you just made the kid an instant Christian. I, I, I'm just not part of my background. Some of you that grew up with, with infant baptism see the dunking, and you, you saw that this summer, outdoor worship, and go, that's different. We in the covenant, we embrace both. We see scriptural and historical background for both. We can understand a theology that can lead people to conclude on both, and so we choose not to divide over it. I remember two women in my church in Kansas City over 30 years ago, Nancy and Niona. Niona was a true blue Swedish covey, had always been in the covenant, baptized as an infant, baptized all four of her children as infants, helped start that church in Kansas City, the church where Mark Johnson and I met a long time ago, our home church. Nancy came from the East Coast and came, had come to faith out of the Catholic Church and had rejected infant baptism, had been re-baptized and immersed herself and wanted that for her children, but landed in our covenant church. She never changed her perspective. Niona never changed her, and they were fast friends because they were not going to divide over the issue of baptism, but unite around Christ and the mission of that church that continues to have a powerful witness in its community. We ask the question in the covenant, where is it written? And we say, where is it written? It's not, where is it proof texted so I can hit you over the head with it? But we always go back to Scripture. We always go back to Scripture and say, let's look at this again. Let's look at baptism again. Let's look at the perspective on the end times again. Let's look at the approach to what we believe about Scripture again. Let's look at this controversial social, cultural topic again. We might have to agree to disagree as long as we agree on Jesus and our commitment to the life-giving power of the Word of God. I'd like us just to stop for a couple minutes. We're, we're about time, but we have time to listen. We have time to ask of ourselves the question of how can this help us to listen, engage, and fight? What are the things that I put in that blank 
So just spend a few moments of quiet reflection. And in a moment, the worship band will come and close us. But let's just spend some quiet. We have, we have a couple minutes. We can do this. We have a couple minutes to do this. Let's reflect and listen. Lord, I thank you that we're not on our own on this. We trust your word and we trust your spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that one of your jobs is to convict us and to convince us, to soften us, to comfort us, and to turn us towards Jesus. Lord, help help us as a congregation to put aside these disputes. I don't think there's many here, Lord, but help us to avoid them. And help us live into that unity to which you call us as we come from different backgrounds and have some different ideas about different things. May we agree on you, Jesus, and the need for all to know your acceptance, your love, and your grace. We ask this and pray it in your name. Amen.